Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Professor Paul Fricker. You're taking your newfound title and running with it then, yeah? What? This is how I now wish to be addressed. (laughs) Right, yes. We'll explain. Will we? (laughs) Carry on. Or or shall we just leave it at that? Anyway, yes, I am Scott Dorwood with no professional qualifications whatsoever. And I'm Matt Sanderson, technically BA Honours. And today we are talking about more great NPCs from history. Some of which may or may not be professors. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, do you want to explain what the fuck you're talking about, Paul? Uh, Does it need an explanation, really? (laughs) You've been busy. You've got your honorary doctorate. (laughs) Well, we have featured once again at the, uh, spoilers, funeral of Jackson Elias on a podcast uh, by a, a good friend of the show, Michael Diamond. Yes, he put in a special nod to us at the end of the episode, the most recent episode, which was Chapter 5 of the New York season of the Old Ways podcast. Links in the show notes. And a couple of days ago, I met up with Alan and Nikki, who were over from Australia, who run Type 40. They make what I think of as Cthulhu props, but what Alan explains are artifacts from imaginary universes. And he makes all manner of things from Captain Marvel shields to Cthulhu idols and props from the Peru chapter, that kind of oh, right. uh, yeah. piece of metal work. <laughs> I, I love no the more. fact that you're miming this well, for the Well, I don't want to say too much because uh, we've already given one spoiler. Yes. But I've got a question for Matt because I didn't know this. Uh-huh. Why is it called Type 40? I have no idea. Ah, I thought you would know this. Where did, What's Type oh, no, 40? Type, type 40 TARDIS. Yes. But, yeah. Apparently, back in the day, and possibly still, he made quite a lot of Doctor Who-related material and couldn't use the name TARDIS, but could use the Type name 40. Type yeah. 40, which for all you Whovians out there is, of course, the model of the TARDIS. Well, well, the, the one of his TARDIS anyway, because there are others. Yeah, I mean, at least 40, I suppose. <laughs> and now on to our main topic... More great NPCs of history. So back in episode 173, when we talked about great NPCs of history, we ran out of time because Matt was... Well, yes, yes, that was a big part of it. I got (laughs) carried away with the monkey glands, as I always do. But Matt was supposed to talk as well, but we didn't give him time because we're bastards. So we thought we'd revisit the topic, give Matt a chance to talk, and bring in a few other potential great NPCs that you can use in your Call of Cthulhu games, plucked from the pages of history. Listeners, it was going to be Agatha Christie I was going to have a talk about, but... Got disappointed with how lacklustre it was in comparison to Monkey Lands. I went out there looking for someone a bit more interesting and a bit weirder. I didn't find anyone necessarily weirder, but I did find someone who was distinctly more interesting. Also, it seems that the rest of the world had heard of, and I hadn't. Ah, yes. So, I know Scott had heard of her, and I'm guessing, Paul, have you heard of Nellie Bly? I think I've heard the name, but I wouldn't be able to tell you anything about her. Ah, okay. Well, that's definitely more than I had from the start, anyway. Right. For someone... 
that's apparently this this famous. I mean, she really, really was famous in her oh, day. Yes. There's a whole list online where you can find that she's been the inspiration for films, TV, movies, features in novels, either as a protagonist or as fictionalised versions of the stories that she covered or the exploits she undertook. Just this is someone I'd never run across. And I was mm. really surprised. Even had a 1946 Broadway musical based on her <laughs> life and experience as well. I think that is always fascinating when you find out somebody you've never heard of that was massive, you mm. know, a few decades ago or a century ago. It's like, well, how have they disappeared when so many others have stayed in the public consciousness? Yeah. Does that mean that we're not going to be remembered in 50 years' time? Who are you again? <laughs> years and more minutes. <laughs> Even up to more recent years, I mean, there's still people who portray her in films or TV series and such, Even now, even in the last... 10 years. So she's definitely had an impact and it still being felt. But yeah, just hadn't crossed my path at all. Mm. Mm. So who is Nellie Bly? The first bit is to spell the name because this comes up uh, <laughs> later as a point. It's Nellie, N-E-L-L-I-E, and then Bly, B-L-Y. Mm. So that wasn't a real name. Uh, her real name was actually Elizabeth Cochrane Seaman. Uh, she was born in May 1864, and Scott is desperately trying to suppress a laugh because he's got a dirty mind, and eventually died in January 1922. So she'd be more suited towards kind of the gaslight era, mm. if we were to use her as an NPC in Call of Cthulhu, but could make a brief appearance in the early part of the 20s if you had a, a, a game set around that point. I'm just trying to work out why someone with a name like Cochrane Seaman would adopt a different name. I, I That's just beyond me. It was originally she was Elizabeth Mary Jane Cochrane. Um, Seaman came from her husband uh, much later down. <laughs> 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 and I broke Scott. Win. <laughs> it was also significantly older than she was as well. So uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. She was best known as a journalist, but she was also an industrialist, an inventor, and a charity worker. Particularly, she was a pioneer in her field and launched a new kind of investigative journalism. As said, Elizabeth Cochran. Uh, originally born then in a, what is now a suburb of Pittsburgh. One of five children with her father's second wife. He had ten with his first wife. Wow, he, he, wow, he, he was, kept going. He was a busy guy in more ways than one. Because <laughs> he, he had a hell of a varied life as well. He started off at a labourer at the local mill, then became a landowner. He was a merchant, he was a postmaster, and eventually an associate justice. So, yeah, he, he moved around career-wise mm. a bit. That's a lot of skill points. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think he made up for it in having a significantly low luck score because he died while she was still a kid, which caused some problems. Oh, so he fitted all that in in quite a short span as well. Oh, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. it couldn't have been that short if he'd had time to have 15 kids and two marriages. He was busy. He got through them pretty quick. Elizabeth, at this point, was also called Pinky because of how often she used to wear the colour. But as a teenager, she tried to distance herself from this and become more professional and more adult and grown up. Uh, she was forced to drop out of boarding school, though, after her father died and subsequently the family's funds ran out. So moved with her mother into the city of Pittsburgh in 1880. And this is where it starts to become quite interesting considering that she's only in her late teens at this point that she wrote a response to an article in the pittsburgh dispatch said that was saying women were for birthing and keeping the house tidy and that's it this led to her being when she responded to the article the letter that she uh, sent in there led to the editor reading it and offering her to write another piece for the newspaper her article about the effect of divorce on women and arguing for reform on divorce laws led to her getting a full-time position at the paper it was customary at that point for female correspondents to write under a pen name. And this is where I said that the spelling of the name is fairly important. Because mm -hmm. it was supposed to be Nellie Bly. Nellie, N-E-L-L-Y. 
which is a reference to a popular song of the time by Stephen Foster. But someone fucked up and there was a typo. The oh. typo stuck. Oh, copy editors, they're the worst. I know, you just don't get, they just don't get paid enough, for, really, for, for attention I mean, to detail, do they? I.e. sounds fine. Yeah, but it didn't immediately evoke the song, but that was, say, by the by. Hmm. Say she took on the took on the pseudonym and focused on the lives of working women, writing a series of articles, um, investigative pieces, on female factory workers. Can you guess what happened? Silence and tumbleweed. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Put us out of our misery, Matt. Well, you're right about some man some man in business. He's going to complain like hell, isn't he? All right, so, yes. Yeah, well. so complaints and factory owners got her to be reassigned to the normal kind of topics that female correspondents would be looking at. Fashion, society, gardening, you know, those riveting, mm. uh, nausea and narcoleptic-inducing pieces. Um, yeah, she wasn't happy with that. So instead, as you do, at the age of just 21 decides to pick up everything, travel to Mexico as a foreign correspondent, and focused on Mexican customs and lives. Her reports were published as a book, Six Months in Mexico, and one report amongst her cycle, protesting the imprisonment of a local journalist against the government, led to the government threatening to arrest her. So, quicker than a speeding bullet, she runs back across the border, back up to Pittsburgh, and continues to uh, wave her flag and shake her fist at the American government in her articles from a safe distance. Hmm. Ultimately, though, again, still not happy because stuck with fashion, gardening. So left the dispatch in 1887 and went to New York City. A good popular hub for Call of Duty scenarios. Mm. Um, She talked her way into the New York world, took an undercover assignment to get into a women's lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island for feigning insanity. Right. Yeah, Yeah, this this is is what she's famous for. Yeah, Yeah, one of her her two big exploits. This This is the first one. It was investigating reports of brutality and neglect at the institution and, as I said, became one of her most famous works. To get into the asylum, to go truly undercover, she say she had to feign insanity. So she checked into a temporary home for females, as they were called, promptly decided to start making wild and loud accusations about the other boarders being insane. She refused to sleep and scared so many of the other women there that the police were called. She was taken to a courthouse, examined, and then promptly taken to the asylum. She spent 10 days inside experiencing the conditions firsthand, and then the newspaper bailed her out by basically saying, hey guys, this is what we've done to you, and now it's going to go to print. She didn't just put a pencil up each nostril and say wibble. <laughs> no, a bit more than that. She really went full method actor to do this. That's incredibly brave. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, especially with some of the con- some of the conditions that she say got to experience yeah. firsthand in there. And she must have known what she was letting herself in for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she, she was definitely under no... No illusions about that. She knew what she was getting into wow. from, from the word go. Her report, 10 Days in a Madhouse, was a sensation and ultimately prompted asylum reform and made her really bloody famous. Mm. So to follow that up, a couple of years later, she decided in 1889 to begin a round-the-world trip attempting to turn Jules Verne's novel into fact for the first time. <laughs> oh, wow. It took her 72 days. She beat fog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And not only that, it was a race. She left on a steamer with the dress she wore, a coat, some underwear, travel bag and toiletry essentials, and a total of £200 in banknotes and gold in a bag around her neck with some American currency, but primarily took the pound with her. Hmm. And an elder sign. <laughs> and a bullet. <laughs> yeah. Dynamite. Yeah. Well, dynamite's an investigator's best friend. Well. Of course, who wouldn't take him? It ultimately, I said, became a race, although she didn't know about this to begin with, against Elizabeth Bisland of the Cosmopolitan newspaper. So both Bly and Bisland were both attempting to beat Fogg going around the world. 
But Bislam went the other way around. She started in New York and then went across the Atlantic. Bislam went the other way, went across the US and then was heading out from the Pacific over to Asia. Right. Although, I say, Bly didn't know about the competition until she reached Hong Kong. And by that point, she just didn't care about the competition, calling it cheap. So she was more interested in her own journey. The World, the newspaper, that is the New York World, organised a contest for readers to guess when she would arrive to the second back in New York. Wow. And the prize for the one who came closest was a trip to Europe, and later on they added spending money to encourage more people to get involved and obviously buy the papers and read her exploits and find out where, mm. she, was, where she was getting to. Well, she had a nice few little milestones on her journey that she went as she went around the world, primarily by steamship and railway. She met Jules Verne in person. Oh, right. Hmm. So, yeah, popped, uh, popped in to say hello. Keeping everyone updated by short progress reports by Telegraph. She visited a leper colony in China and also bought a monkey in Singapore. Okay. So she is an NPC with a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> Animal companion. Yeah. yeah. This one got to keep its glands. She arrived home four and a half days before her competition. It was a world record at the time, although George Francis Train beat it a few months later, knocking it down to 67 days and then 60 days on his third attempt. By 1913, it was done in 36 days by John Henry Myers. But anyway, in 1895, she married... This is where... Let's see if we can uh, keep Scott with a straight face again. Married the millionaire Robert Seaman. Uh, she was 31 and he was 73, uh, a manufacturer. Wow. Yeah, that okay. was a one That's hell of an age gap. Quite a gap, yeah. yeah. Funnily enough, not long after they got together, his health started to fail. She left, well, she didn't leave journalism. She did step back into it eventually, but she took a step back from her normal reportage duties and got more involved in the Ironclad Manufacturing Co. that Seaman owned. He died in 1904 and she pretty much carried the company on from there. What did they do, Ironclad Manufacturing? Uh, mostly iron metal products. Right. Particularly as they started making products, she this is where she started to turn her hand to inventing and started designing. Um, right. She got, she got a couple of patents under her belt. She created a milk can, a stacking garbage can, and I say got patents for them. It made her pretty wealthy. She's primarily a journalist, not so much of a great businesswoman. Hmm. And her negligence, and not to mention a factory manager embezzled a shitload of money, resulted in the ironclad manufacturing company going bankrupt. Huh. Huh. So, back to journalism. She ended up moving to, well, not moving to, travelling to Europe to cover and report the Eastern Front during World War I and was one of the first women and foreigners to visit the war between Serbia and Austria. Mm. Uh, consequently, they, she was arrested there because they believed she was a British spy because <laughs> no one would believe there would be an American female journalist over there. No, you're definitely a spy lady. She also covered women's suffrage parade of 1913 and predicted it would be 1920 before women in the US got the vote. And tragically, in New York in 1922, at the age of just 57, she contracted pneumonia, was admitted to St. Mark's Hospital, and died there. Uh, she's interned in the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Well, she did pack an awful lot into those 57 years. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, she did a lot. So when you think of her in Call of Cthulhu terms, she sounds very much like an archetype or you know, a model for a Call of Cthulhu investigator. But obviously we're talking about NPCs. Mm -hmm. So how would you use her as an NPC in a game? Uh, someone who the investigators almost run into in a game as, of course, of being another investigator. The three core instances that came to mind immediately for me were, hey, if you're playing one of those big campaigns where you end up having to trot around the globe, and you need to get from one place to the next, and maybe either you're running out of funds because, hey, your average haberdasher isn't going to have the funds to transport themselves around the world playing Mask of the Alphalete, hmm. then she might be on part of her trip. 
heading around and offers to bring you along or offers to help out. Mm. Um, yeah, just provides you with a way of getting from A to B as well as being a nice bit of colour along the way and maybe opening your eyes to a few things that you haven't seen. Uh, could even provide a little bit of an info dump of stuff that she's heard along the way. Yeah, I can see her almost being a Jackson Elias type character in that respect. Yeah, very, very, very much so. Yeah, yeah. And also it could be a cover for a alternative motivation for going to some of those places. Mm. Right. I mean, because she's get, trying to get there quickly as well. So if she wanted to get to some of those places quickly, you know, under the cover of, you know, trying to break a world record mm-hmm. and get in finance for it. Yeah. So as an investigative journalist, like that's just kind of screams someone would be looking into a, a mythos case. Mm. So it could be that you stumble across her already performing an investigation that the investigators themselves are looking into, maybe perhaps being able to fill some of the holes in the investigation that they haven't, maybe stuff they've missed on. So darn, they failed that library use role or that spot hidden role they didn't make earlier. Maybe they, that's another way the Keeper can get information to the players through her. When you use an NPC like that, I usually think it's interesting if the NPC wants something in return out of the player characters. Because you know, if they just turn up and sort of, oh, here's all the information you didn't manage to get, it can be a bit anticlimactic. Oh, very. But, it's almost Deus Ex Machina in a way. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, if it's sort of, yes, I can help you with this, but you've got to do something for me mm-hmm. first. I mean, what kinds of things do you think that might happen that, that she might want from the player characters? I, I'd say it's that yeah, I've been investigating this, uh, this particular story, but I've also got this other investigation on the mm-hmm. back burner where I'm missing some holes here. Can you Go, like, get undercover and go into this factory and learn some stuff. Maybe you'll get into this office and later. Or maybe I need someone to do something maybe not quite legal for me to get some info. Definitely get them to push some boundaries that they're not necessarily comfortable with. Could also then be providing a hook into another investigation later on. So and she's, she's clearly got a, an interest in people and stories. So if the player characters were to confide what they were doing with her, then I think she would take an active interest, it would look mm. like to me. Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. She's quite fearless and interested in all sorts of causes. And she also strikes me as being the kind of person that if you were using her as an NPC in a game, you probably wouldn't want to use an analogue for her. You'd probably want to use the actual character. Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd definitely use her because it feels it's kind of cheapened if you don't. that some, Someone like this who is so colourful, you, you want to use her. Yeah. Because the last of the three that came to mind for me was probably the nice little uh, kicker. Yep, between those scenarios or between those big campaigns, you've gone crazy and have ended up in an asylum. <laughs> well, guess who's there conducting an undercover report <laughs> that yes. could probably be the one that could help you get out by proving that you're finally sane? Do you know how she proved that she wasn't an actual patient in the asylum? Did she have somebody outside to come in and say, yeah, the, actually, the news, this... the newspaper. Right, okay. Yeah. Well, I can imagine that would otherwise cause trouble if she'd just done it independently. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm not mad. Yeah. I'm not crazy, Gov, honestly. I'm just writing a story. Yes, dear. Yeah, here's your tablets. But it's real. No, no, yeah. it, was, it was the newspaper. That's what would happen if you did that as an investigator. <laughs> Have you read John Ronson's The Psychopath Test? Because there's a guy that he interviewed who basically put in an insanity defence. I think he was charged with GBH or ABH or something like that. He ended up in Broadmoor as a result because they, they bought the defence. But he'd done such a good job of faking the symptoms of mental illness that he'd ended up in Broadmoor. He was there for much longer than his prison sentence would have been. Hmm. because he, I mean, the way he put it to John Ronson was that he 
couldn't convince the staff that he was sane because every time he'd come up with you know any explanation for his behavior or whatever he'd he'd talk about how it was twisted back and used as proof that it, you know this was all a psychotic delusion i mean in practice when you know ronson interviewed some of the the staff at broadmoor it was much more that they'd realized once he was there that he was a psychopath that he was you know, highly manipulative and that they were worried about letting him out because they thought he was dangerous hmm. yeah but definitely not psychotic. Kind of one that almost reminds me of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was kind of that for real. But yeah, that's uh, so that is the very quick whistle-stop tour of Nellie Bly. Very good. I'd guess from the details you've given that you'd consider her much more for a standard purist Call of Cthulhu game rather than a pop one. Well, I could see potentially both. Uh, potentially the trip trip around the world I could see working quite well as pulp because mm. you've got your red, your Indiana Jones red line on a map going around. But yeah, I could, I could see it potentially fitting into both camps. And I think with the pulp, you'd perhaps want to use an analogue of her. And with that ironclad manufacturing, that sounds like you know some kind of uh, pulp armaments <laughs> or something like that, <laughs> yes. that a person... Like that could be manufacturing. They weren't garbage cans. They were mech warriors. Well, indeed, <laughs> steam-powered monsters. <laughs> no wonder they cost so much and made the company go bankrupt. And clockwork Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> Stranger things have happened, you know. <laughs> oh. All right then, Paul. How about you? Okay, so I have chosen Ellen Wilkinson. She was. A politician in Britain in the 20s and 30s. She was from a working class background and became a British MP. I tried to find somebody who wasn't... Because often when you look at people from history, they come from quite privileged backgrounds, Mm. which is what I found with a lot of people I looked at. And I thought, I'll try and find somebody who's not. So she was born in 1891 in Chalton, Manchester, into a poor though ambitious family, the daughter of a Methodist lay preacher. So her father had quite religious, quite conservative views, which no doubt he tried to impress upon her. At the age of 11, she was obviously a very bright child. She won a scholarship to a higher elementary school, an experience which she remembered as horrid and unmanageable. But during her teenage years, she started to get this interest in politics, as many teenagers do, or maybe not enough do. I don't know. She went to the University of Manchester and graduated in 1913. And yeah, she also went on to work in women's suffrage organisations and trade unions. So obviously very active politically. And this is where her interests clearly lay. In her work, she worked uh, in trade unions and she organised strikes and so on, including a lengthy dispute with the Longsight Print Works in Manchester in the summer of 1918, where opponents described her as, and I thought this was a good uh, phrase, described her tactics as unreasonable guerrilla warfare. Hey, nice. Bringing back the monkeys again. This is an interesting event. In uh, 1913, so just before the First World War, she organised, she helped organise uh, a suffrage pilgrimage to London and more than 50,000 people from all over the country amassed in Hyde Park in London. It was a big event at mm. the time and people, you know, so this was a kind of a thing that we will see uh, later in her career as well of organising big mass marches and we don't really see those so much now. We see demonstrations taking place in London, but this idea of uh, the Long March. Around this sort of time, we've got the, the Russian Revolution and so on. And in 1917, she joined the British Communist Party. And I think this was a time, again, 
I mean, to me, from my perspective, when I hear about communism, it seems like a it's current, but it's the concept seems almost historic. It's, mm. It doesn't seem a credible thing anymore. And I don't know if that's my grasp of political philosophy is, is very much a layman's. But it seems like at the time, people thought that maybe that whole communist thing was going to spread across Europe and become the... The, uh, the convention, or at least some people did. Yeah, I mean, certainly Marx, I, if I remember correctly, believed that the UK was going to be the kernel mm. of the communist revolution spreading across the world, not Russia. But it's hard to put yourself in that mindset, isn't it, where that seemed like a possibility, because it seems totally incredible that, that would happen now. Although where my daughter lives in North London, you know, the flat beneath, she refers to as the communists. Yeah. <laughs> That's London for you. It's good to know they're still around. Full of communists, who tell you. <laughs> yeah, so Wilkinson's attitudes were radicalised by the Russian Revolution of 1917. And in 21, she attended the Second Congress of Communist Women in Moscow, where she met several Russian communist leaders, including Leon Trotsky and Lenin, and was greatly impressed by a number of speeches given by Lenin's wife. And that's another thing, you know, because growing up in the, the 70s and 80s, the the communist bloc, Russia and so on, was behind you know Iron, Iron Curtain. It was mm. inconceivable that you could travel there. I mean, maybe particular individuals, diplomats or journalists might get access to it, but it was beyond reach, wasn't it? The Soviet Union was a very different place before Lenin died and Stalin took over. Mm. And, I mean, what you're talking about there as well with the International Women's Conference and so on, that it was... Very much, um, you know, the, the whole idea of equality between the sexes was a big part of Soviet society at the time. You know, obviously all the leaders were still men. So yeah. it, yeah, they weren't necessarily practicing what they preached. But you know, there was, I think, you know, a brief period of time where it's seen as transformative in those social aspects as being really quite liberating. And then, of course, Stalin came along and fucked everything up. You know, it is interesting to look back and like we talked about famous people that are perhaps now, you know, not as well known or, or kind of perhaps forgotten. The whole ethos of the time is the same. I think you know, it's, it's hard to put yourself back in that feeling of the time and, and the way people thought about the world in general, because I don't immediately think of what you just described as Russia being so open and promoting equal rights of women and so on. That's mm. not my. That's not. That wouldn't be my go-to. Yeah. Well, I mean, just because I don't know about it enough. Well, and, and also, I mean, it did change so much after that. I mean, you know, Stalin was massively repressive, brutal, but that's, changed everything, and that's what we remember. That's what yeah, shapes our exactly. memories, and what came after that. That that's how we think of the Soviet Union now. But it didn't necessarily start that way, even if it did start violently. I don't think she was too keen on uh, many of the British ways. Certainly not when it came to Ireland. So she visited Ireland in 1920 and became an outspoken critic of the British government's actions there, which, you know, kind of understandable. Yeah. In particular, <laughs> um, of the Black and Tans, a paramilitary force, yeah. another name for the Royal Irish Constabulary. She gave evidence about the British forces in Ireland at the Congressional Committee of Investigation in Washington in December of that same year in 1920. And she called for an immediate truce and the release of Republican prisoners. So mm. a very active political figure. You know, all these things led to her being elected as a Labour MP for Middlesbrough East in 1924. And she supported the 1926 general strike 
So I'm I'm kind of going to draw a close there because I'm I'm sort of thinking of her as a, a 1920s figure. She does go on to help organise the Jarrow March, which was a very famous march in Britain. Which oh, it, which this is kind of just more of an aside, really, but. I take note that this paragraph that I read. In 1929, the Wall Street crash, largely caused by greed and speculation, had precipitated a worldwide economic crisis. Banks collapsed, businesses went bust, consumer spending plummeted, currencies lost their value, and unemployment rose. At the time, the Labour Party was in government, but it could not agree on how to resolve the crisis, and in 1931 it broke apart, leaving a a conservative-dominated national government in power for the rest of the 1930s. Bankers caused the mess, but for the British worker, who was forced to pay for the clean-up. The Tories quickly cut public expenditure, unemployment rocketed, to the detriment of British towns like Jarrow and a strong industrial base. I thought so, we were supposed to be talking about the 20s and 30s. And yeah. Like a modern day. <laughs> Absolutely no parallel to the current day there. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Just to just finish off her story, she became uh, Minister of Education in 1945 uh, until her death in 1947. She changed the law to allow women to become police constables and she introduced milk uh, in schools. That was a thing to sort of help the, uh, the public. Before Margaret Thatcher took it away. Indeed, yes. <laughs> I got mine. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I remember it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, right. Yeah, for a, for a very for a very sort of short period. But no, I remember that. And I've got a note here. Her brother on her upon her death, her brother burned all her papers. What an ass! I put. Um, <laughs> Was that at her request? No. Oh no, he thought mm. she'd kind of bring disgrace upon the um, family and and so on. I think oh. I think she had some affairs. You know, he he sort of felt that. I, I guess. I'm guessing they didn't get on. No, he, he actually listened to the note in there that said, if some uh, executor of my estate finds this note, please burn it all. Well, unlike Franz Kafka's <laughs> executor. No, I was more thinking the end for uh, Francis Whalen Thurston's note in his all uh, right. mm. in well, the Call of Cthulhu. But no, I mean, that did happen with Franz Kafka. He'd left instructions to his uh, executor that all his papers should be destroyed. And at that stage, not much of his stuff had been published. His executor went through it all and uh, thought, no, the world deserves to see this. And that's why we have Kafka in print now, oh, mm. okay. because he ignored that instruction. <laughs> so I think it's interesting to consider that most MPCs of note if they're kind of involved in the Cthulhu mythos the the default thing is they've joined a cult you know it's some mm. kind of religious motivation I would definitely use an analogue of Ellen Wilkinson here I wouldn't use the actual person but if we were to cast her as a you know a villain a, a Cthulhu NPC one who's politically motivated and I can see that again I almost said cult leader but somebody who was trying to Bring about summon, change, summon sort of some dark god or something you know the, right. the the kind of the cthulhu call of cthulhu motivations we see so for sort of major npcs rather than using the kind of cult front they might use a political activism one mm. because in the cause of both a cult or a political activity people are willing to give up their home their job and go and pursue things that Normally, in everyday life, we wouldn't because we want to keep our position and our possessions and we want to play life safe. Um, but these people, um, you know, we see it with Greta Thunberg and, and, and so on. We see it with people who are, are willing to you know, make a stand and go out and do something beyond their everyday life, uh, yeah. which is admirable. But I can see 
if manipulated, could perhaps be used for mythos ends. Politicians make great bad guys as well. <laughs> I'm thinking uh, thinking the likes of Greg Stilson from The Dead Zone, the Stephen King book. Mm. Or even real-life examples if you want to put Nixon in place for all, all the president's men. Mm. Power and villainy come very well hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, that's where they're using their office to achieve things. But I'm thinking more of the kind of guerrilla politics where they're going out you know perhaps getting involved in like animal rights or or things like that and um committing crimes for for some end which they think is a a righteous one that they believe in but yeah you know there may be another hand controlling their action fundamentally i mean you, what you're describing there is pretty much political terrorism yeah but it is that twisting of the desire to bring about political change into something more malignant and i think yeah you could see parallels there with say something like the red army faction i was going to say the bard gang fits that quite mm. nicely as well yeah yeah where you know their goals were possibly you know not even too dissimilar uh that you know they were trying to bring about you know, egalitarian change and the you know financial change, changing power structures, but they were doing it in a really horrible and fundamentally shit way. <laughs> I mean, they they weren't very good at what they did yeah. either. But yeah. they, they were kind of fearing the rise of the uh, far right again in Germany post World War Two. And I think for both of um, the characters we've talked about, we, we were calling this NPCs, but equally, I think you can take inspiration for a player character from these. Mm. You know, as as to why would I get involved in this mission? Certainly Nellie Bly, you know, from the journalist point of view, the journalist, the very easy thing to latch into a, a scenario. The political one, perhaps not so much, but um, if you could, if it could be spun that you thought this was going to further some political aim, then potentially that would be a way to latch into a scenario. And again, she could even be a, a sort of patron of some kind, or at least an information source, or maybe you're mm. in the process of setting up strikes and investigating the activities of certain industrialists and businesses and so on, that she's uncovered, you know, the kind of conspiracy that we might see in Masks of Nialothotep or something like that, where, you know, there's certainly an industrial aspect to certain parts there. Perhaps the investigators could go to her, or she could get the word out to other people that businesses are being used used for this kind of cover actually it makes me think that i said about some nefarious hand controlling or influencing that npc to do something i can imagine if i were running a game and matt was a player character he might end up going to her in her office as mp and like convincing her to do something in her constituency <laughs> for his own ends he could be the the hand behind the throne there hell but yeah <laughs> because she's a because she's a, an mp she would have quite a lot of influence mm. in her locality. And if you wanted to get something done there, that might be a good contact. And whether you are going to be open and tell that MP the true reason why you want something done or whether you're going to deceive them would be up to the player characters. But that's why you have the mental suggestion spell. Well, indeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would work as well. And the physical description is kind of notable. She was about four foot nine. Oh, wow and had flame red hair and wore these kind of bright green dresses. So it would have been an incredibly striking mm. um, person in, in looks as well, I think. At least the hair matched the politics. Well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> right, Scott, what horror, what abomination, <laughs> what weird shit have you brought with us this time? Nothing as bad as last time, but I did 
find a character out of history who I quite captured my imagination. I read a book recently called King Con, The Bizarre Adventures of the Jazz Age's Greatest Imposter, written by a, a journalist called Paul Willits. And it tells the story of this chap called Edgar LaPlante, who I'd never heard of before. He was born in 1888 or thereabouts, there, there aren't any proper records, in Central Falls, Rhode Island. His parents were French Canadians who'd moved to the US, uh, but he, he was born and brought up in the US. He'd started his life of criminality quite young. Uh, when he was a teenager, about 14, he started a scheme where he'd go around local businesses raising funds for a well-loved local businessman who was in financial hardship and coincidentally just pocketing all the money for himself. This ended up getting him sent off to a sort of boarding school that was kind of like a borstal that uh, I think did that sort of classic thing of helping shape his criminality even more. Then as a young adult, he moved into that no-man's land between criminality and show business. He started out working in Coney Island as what was referred to as a ballyhoo man. And his shtick there was that he'd dress up as a Native American. He'd, you know, with a, a headdress made of turkey feathers and um, buckskins and stuff like that. And he'd go around and he'd sing and dance and uh, do a bit of patter to try to get people to, you know, go and talk to the actual carnival barkers or stand around in front of the attractions. They sort of set him up and he, you know, throughout the rest of his career, he was very much sort of a song and dance band and a performer and a great public speaker. He worked in vaudeville and apparently had a fantastic singing voice. But this isn't what he's remembered for. He then got into the medicine show circuit where people would sell patent medicines, but again, do it as a show, a travelling show. Oh, like this, hey, this miracle tonic will bring your hair back. That's right. Oh, God. But he was also, again, keeping this, this Native American guise and you know, doing the same kinds of things as, as entertainment for the people who were actually shilling the medicines. Mm. And he then sort of built on this a bit more, like I say, went into vaudeville. And when's this, Scott? When, the, when's oh, he sorry. This? The, the, this is all around the early 1900s. Okay. But then in the First World War, things started getting weird because he went kind of full-on confidence trickster at this stage. In 1917, he just adopted this persona of a man called Tom Longboat, who was a real man. He was uh, a Canadian, an Iroquois athlete. He, he was a marathon runner. And he was quite famous for that. He was actually over in Europe serving in the Canadian Expeditionary Force at this stage. Laplante took on the guise of Tom Longboat and started giving all these talks, giving lectures about Native American rights, talking about the fact that even though Native Americans weren't considered US citizens at the time, didn't have any rights there, that there was still an awful lot over in Europe fighting and using this as a way of sort of encouraging other people to sign up, even though Laplante himself wasn't in the military. And he did a fantastic job of fundraising and of raising awareness of, of both Native American rights and of recruiting people for the war effort. And coincidentally, he pocketed a lot of the money he raised as he was doing this. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, this is sort of a, a theme that runs through his career, that he'd sort of almost inadvertently do a lot of good at the same time as he was bilking people left mm. and right. And, 
and pioneering identity theft. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this came to a crashing halt when Tom Longboat, the real Tom Longboat, <laughs> learnt about it and sort of alerted the press and sort of said, there is someone who is pretending to be me, he's not me. And so Laplante just adopted a new guise at this stage. Instead of stealing someone else's identity, he reinvented himself as Chief White Elk, the chief of the Cherokees. This is something that he managed to get away with for pretty much the rest of his career, off and on. I mean, he'd adopt variants of this uh, this guise, despite the fact that he had no Native American parentage of himself, and he was, you know, everything that he knew about it was just sort of second hand. So he's a regular Caucasian guy. Yeah, well, French Canadian stock. French yeah. Canadian, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's kind of the Ali G of his day, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but but again, you know, he'd go around and he'd lecture on Native American rights. He ended up marrying a Native American woman who, you know, was also a vaudeville performer and, you know, put on certain airs and graces of her own. Mm. But he, he spent a lot of time traveling with Native Americans. And, you know, I, I have to wonder how much was just them putting up with his bullshit hmm. because he was getting stuff done. But yeah, he travelled all over the Western US, basically doing a combination of these these lectures, occasionally doing uh, song and dance routines, doing uh, songs at big halls, doing these fundraising things, first of all for the war effort and then for for Native American rights. And <laughs> just pocketing not all of the money sometimes he'd he'd actually be relatively honest and give all the money away but sometimes he'd just you know pocket a bit of it and yeah like i say it was that sort of weird middle ground between doing good and robbing people blind and he came unstuck a bit in salt lake city because he'd ripped off a a few prominent people to pay for his wedding at the time and the Salt Lake City Tribune, I think is the newspaper, started running stories about him. Now, he got away with this stuff for a long time because every time something like this happened, he just moved to another city. Mm. And because this was the early 20s at this stage, there weren't really any national institutions that could track him. Newspapers were fairly local. There wasn't much of a national telephone network, or at least you know people didn't make a lot of long-distance calls. There wasn't the FBI. Well, to be honest, having watched the documentary about Ted Bundy in the 70s, yeah. the network wasn't that great. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he'd just be able to move like 50 miles to the next mm. town. And they didn't read the, the newspapers from the last town. And he just kind of got away with this over and over again. And he sort of supplemented this in a lot of interesting ways. I mean, he'd create fake documents for himself about, you know, his various qualifications. And he pretended to be all sorts of things. He pretended to be able to speak 21 languages. He pretended to be a medical doctor. Despite the fact that he was in his 30s, he'd quite often pretend to be in his 60s and just remarkably well-preserved. But he'd you know, sort of parlay these documents uh, that he either managed to, to forge himself or to get other people to create on his behalf into real documents and sort of develop this bizarre network of trust, mm. which, again, you probably couldn't get away with in later time periods. But th this is one of the things that I thought was really interesting from a Call of Cthulhu point of view, which is how susceptible 
society, American society particularly, because it's so much more widespread, was to this kind of fraud. Yeah, no, I was just pondering whether it was unique to American society or whether you'd get the same thing around here. Because I guess unless you're doing something that is going to make the national newspapers, if it's just making local papers... Like you say, local papers are read in their locality. Yeah. So if you go to the next county or the next state, then, you know, so I imagine if you went from Yorkshire to you know, Wales or something, they probably wouldn't know about it. Well, we'll find out about all that right. because he did actually move to the UK. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Fling all this stuff in the US, he went up to Canada, first of all, and joined this sort of travelling circuit of not quite performers, but people who would go around giving lectures on various things. And again, lecturing on Native American rights and culture, mostly stuff that he was just making up. But you know, again, fundraising, and he'd he'd made some contacts amongst. I think they were, you know, the actual Cherokee, and was funneling money back to them, as well mm. as yeah, you know, as well as making money for himself. But it got to the stage where he was actually giving so much of it away legitimately that he was almost bankrupting himself. He was also in financial hardship at this stage because he developed simultaneous uh, cocaine and morphine habits, as well as being a heavy drinker. And this is what caused his wife to leave him. Sounds like a, whole, a round, wholesome, <laughs> nice guy, doesn't he? Yeah. On one, one, hand, one hand, he's Robin Hood. The other hand, he's a hate crime. And on top of that, he's a heavy drug user. For yep. fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things got hot for him in Canada. So he ended up fleeing across the Atlantic to the UK in 1922. And he <laughs> sort of played upon this chief white elk of the Cherokee thing in a big way. He made all sorts of contacts with the British press. Uh, he'd, he'd announced his arrival before he went over there and was greeted at the docks in Liverpool by, by the press there and announced his intentions to go and see King Edward VIII and basically petition for the rights of Indigenous people in Canada because at this stage he was now uh, claiming to be Canadian. Hmm. His shtick was that he sort of claimed that there was a lot of his own tribes and families' money that was owed to them because of oil rights that was being held up by the British government. And he was hoping to try to get King Edward to actually free up this money, despite the fact that none of these oil wells existed. He came so, so close to actually getting this meeting, but it was like the day before it broke in the press that he was a charlatan. Mm. So he basically went on the music hall circuit and tried to raise money there. Coincidentally, married, I think, bigamously, because I don't think he divorced his previous wife, a woman in in England who had a young son. And (laughs) I sort of stayed with him for a little bit, but then kind of walked out and did this music hall circuit. And he was bisexual as well, so he was having a lot of affairs with men at the same time as he was married to her, which attracted the attention of the British authorities. And between that and the fraud, he ended up having to flee the UK. So he went over to the French Riviera, and this is where things started escalating, like really escalating, still pretending to be Chief White Elk. He uh, encountered this Contessa, whose name I'm going to mangle, Antoinette Kevin Huller Metch. And her stepmother, Melania. And they were these, you know, very wealthy Austrian aristocrats. (laughs) And he, over the course of the next year, basically gave them lots of stories, building on this whole idea of how there were all these frozen funds in Canada that he was petitioning the British government to release. 
got them to lend him increasingly large amounts of money. And he'd do this to other people, but primarily to them. And uh, he ended up, I think, sleeping with both of them at some stage, uh, claiming that the younger one was his fiancée, and basically getting into all sorts of trouble with their family, which finally proved his undoing. He took a lot of that money, and when things got hot in France, he went to Italy, where Mussolini's government had basically just taken power. And he started really cozying up with Mussolini and the fascists there, and became absolutely beloved of the local fascists, to the extent where he was supposed to actually meet Mussolini at some stage. But again, that fell through at the last minute, not because he was found out, but because there was some crisis, political crisis, that Mussolini had to deal with. I'm getting a vibe here that uh, reminds me of a quote from Neil Gaiman in an interview once, where he said he listed on his CV a whole list of places that he'd worked for, or different magazines or newspapers, and by the end, he started off with saying, yeah, I've worked for these dozen people. But 10 years later, he had worked for all of them. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm getting the impression that the rate this guy's moving around, he will have learned 21 languages. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did actually know a fair few, and he was actually a very adept linguist. So, for example, when he went to Italy, he didn't actually speak any Italian. He got by initially in French and, and English. But he picked up Italian very quickly, and this mm-hmm. is how he became friends with, with all the, the local fascists. And... <laughs> During his time with the fascists there, he basically, you know, just kept getting all this money out of, well, partly them, but mostly out of the, the two contesses. And he lived a very lavish lifestyle, going around from hotel to hotel, having these huge parties. He was renowned as a huge tipper. Anyone who served him, he'd give massive amounts of money to. But he'd just walk around on the streets all day, every day, just handing out huge wadges of banknotes to people he met. Because, I mean, I think fundamentally, rather than a classic con artist or rather than being driven by greed, he was a typical narcissist in that what he really wanted was adulation and by you know getting all this money off other people building up his own persona and mm. getting these just random people to love him because he was giving them money that you know this filled some great need within himself and I mean, Paul Willis kind of calculated that during this one year in Italy that he burned through the equivalent in today's money, of $60 million. Whoa! Why can't yeah. he be around today and hand me some of that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and this was just all money that he had conned out of other people, rich people, and just gave away. I mean, <laughs> he, mm. it's almost like he was Robin Hood, just mm. the Robin Hood of the con job. But, but with, without the sort of altruistic motivation that he was doing it all to feed his own ego. Mm. I said, part Robin Hood, part (laughs) hate crime. Yeah. And so eventually the Contessa's families just got wise to everything that was going on. They started putting pressure on him to pay back the money that he'd owed, which was obviously never going to happen. He fled to Switzerland where he was ultimately arrested just because he ran out on a hotel bill. Mm. He, he, he was very prone to doing this because he was moving around from place to mm. place. He'd go to expensive hotels, run up huge bills, and then just move on to the next place. But this caught up with him in Switzerland, and he was sent to prison there for about a year. And when he was released, he was handed over to the Italian authorities. And they sentenced him to seven years. And this was in 1925-26. But he was released after, I think, about three years and went back to the US. But by this stage, 
Word had got back to the US about his exploits there and what he'd been up to in the US and Canada. And he was now, by this stage, actually quite famous for being a con artist. So he just couldn't go back to that kind of lifestyle anymore. And his health was also failing because, as well as the drug addiction and the drinking and so on, he also had syphilis. He tried to go back into vaudeville, but this was, you know, during the, the start of the Depression. And the talkies had pretty much taken over from vaudeville at that stage anyway. He couldn't do his big cons because he was too well known. And so he basically just sort of eked out a living on the periphery of the entertainment business and, you know, carried on doing lots of small cons just to keep him going. But he eventually just died in the mid-40s as a pauper in Arizona. He'd been, you know, in and out of various free hospitals because he, mm. his heart was failing. Yeah, he was 55 when he died. Yeah. And he was just buried in a pauper's grave in Arizona. So I can kind of imagine that he got by on force of personality a lot. You know, this, yeah. this ability of some people to integrate with the great and the good, the politicians and the high-rolling aristocrats of the time just by charisma. And you can also imagine that after some time in prison and with the drug addiction and the alcoholism and so on and the syphilis, that that force of personality probably waned. It, it very much did, as did... I mean, he was also very good-looking when he was young, but between the alcohol and the syphilis and just, you know, age, that left him as well. And so, yeah, as a result, you know, the the tools that he used in order to make his living started failing him. Mm. I think he still remained quite charismatic and a good singer and so on until fairly close to the end. But yeah, I mean, what you're talking about with forced personality, apparently he was a stunning orator. You know, mm. he was, this is why he was going around making all these speeches and getting money out of it, because he could just absolutely command a crowd from the skills that he'd learned in vaudeville and as a carnival barker and at the medicine shows. So extremely high, fast talk. Yes. I think. I think that from a Call of Cthulhu point of view, there's all sorts of things that we can pick up here. One is, you know, this whole idea of how easy it was at the time basically to flee consequences Mm. because i mean that's not just something that you see in an antagonist but it's something that's fairly essential to investigators because investigators almost all of their activities are criminal it's breaking and entering assault burglary murder people object to me setting dynamite (laughs) off in the middle of town i don't don't know why yeah and so i mean it's a good reminder of how investigators, if they just up sticks and move to a different place, not even that far away in the US at this time, can keep ahead of the law, keep ahead of the press, and just escape consequences, at least for a while. Yeah. And also, I think it's absolutely fascinating to look at how effectively he manipulated people. Hmm. Because if you're thinking of him as an antagonist. I I wouldn't necessarily use him. I'd probably use him as inspiration for another character. But the fact that he adopted this completely fake persona that, you know, he he was pretending to be someone of another ethnicity, someone from a completely different background, but he was so quick-witted and so good at picking up the peripheral information he needed to sell this idea, even to people who might know more about it than he did, that he was just massively successful. And between that and the charisma, you know, he got away with 
just astonishing things. Mm. It's the kind of thing, if it were in a game, you'd think as a player, well, this seems a bit ridiculous, but I'll go along with it. Yeah. But actually, you know, truth is often strange in the fiction, as we can see here. Yeah. yeah. But it's a reminder that people fundamentally want to believe that other people are good. Mm. They want to believe that someone is who they say they are. And I think if you've got an antagonist in Call of Cthulhu, a cult leader who is pretending to be a beloved member of the community, a, someone who is respectable, then it's going to be really difficult for investigators to act against that, to convince the people around them that they're lying, because people will want to believe the stories they've been told. I suddenly feel like my cynical resentment of humanity will give me a bonus die on my psychology roles to determine, <laughs> are you a cult leader when I meet you in a game? So as, a, as an influencer, really, getting people to do things for him, you know, much as we've discussed with some of the other um, NPCs, yeah. but, but this one through Charisma and also through his giving away money to people to win yes. favour, it opens a lot of doors. The people don't need, you know, the, let's call them cultists, don't need to be part of some semi-religious cult. They could just be in his employ almost, just... just doing it because yeah. he asked them to because they think he's such a great guy. Yeah, well, worked with the fascists. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I, the other thing as well, which I think is potentially interesting for Call of Cthulhu, is that the whole idea of uh, vaudeville and the travelling shows at the time sort of being very much hand-in-hand hand with criminality, that would, I think, be a very interesting backdrop for a scenario or a campaign. The mythos elements could be something completely different, but that giving a sort of campaign structure of being in this sort of netherworld of sort of semi-legitimacy, but at the same time, you know, outright criminality. And definitely if you've got a very high credit rating and fail your luck roll when you turn up in town, guess who's just come walking up to you <laughs> ask, asking for a favour? Thank you. Thank you. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to all those lovely people who have given us money. And after the last segment, I'm now <laughs> feeling very self-conscious. About yeah, I was <laughs> thinking this guy should have done a podcast. What was he playing at? <laughs> Quick, but, move on. They might notice. <laughs> but thank you very much to everyone who listens to the podcast, everyone who has backed us on Patreon. And we have a few new people to thank by name. So starting off with somebody who we mispronounced last time, and I... I can only hope, because I've only read his name online now, that I'm now pronouncing it correctly. So thank you to Martin Gerke. Also, our thanks go out to an, an interestingly named one here, who understand that uh, Scott and Paul know. Cuppy Cup from the Ain't Slayed Nobody podcast. Yes, yeah, we've both been chatting with him online. It seems to be a thoroughly decent chap, so thank you very much. And thank you very much to Cat Munn. And thank you to Jonathan Kenneth Broster. And also another great name here. Our thanks go out to Euclid Prime. And I will offer the standard apology in advance if I'm mangling your name here, but thank you very much to Tien Tai. And another name I'm liking here, thanks to Potato Richardson. Ah, yes, who has become a presence on our Discord server as well. And also thanks go out to Stuart Webb. And thank you very much to the singular Trung, or Trung. And thanks to Chris Cassens. And it's that uh, pronunciation warning here again. Hopefully I'm going to get this right in one of these two. Thanks to Fred. It's either Keisha or Keish. And thank you very much to Tim Searle. And thank you to Sue Savage. And thank you to Kathleen Lambert. Thank you very much as well to Stephen Wacker, who has upped his pledge to something really quite humbling. So thank you, Stephen. 
Well, that's all for this week. So it's uh, Professor Fricker signing out. Oh, God, we're never going to hear the end of this. I, what? I, I, what? I've, after I've that's just my talk, name. After I've just talked about people pretending to be what they're not and taking on... I, you are the Edgar LaPlante of podcasts. Do you not feel you? the force of my charisma, Scott? Always, always. <laughs> anyway, yes, it's cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemoustomes.com But I am disappointed. No monkey reference. (laughs) Me and Paul got them in. No monkey for you. (laughs) I'm not sure I got monkeys in, did I? Well, you got guerrilla warfare. Oh, I see. (laughs) Ah.